0: Lord, I thank you for speaking to us in your word. I thank you for not leaving us without light. I ask that you would speak to us now uh, through the book of Haggai. I ask that you would grant me faithfulness to what you have said and that you would grant all of us uh, ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning's sermon is going to be from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I invite everyone to... Turn there and keep one eye on the text. I'll read to open us. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, since uh, this isn't a series through Haggai, and I'm just here once, in order to situate our passage today, let me just kind of give us a brief refresher course on the book of Haggai. Haggai the man was a post-exilic prophet, one of the last prophets active in the Bible before the New Testament. He prophesied during the time period following the exile of the people of Israel in Babylon. Remember the timeline. The Israelites, rescued from Egypt, planted in their own land, given a king. They had their own kingdom. And this was a kingdom that was established on the basis of being a people who were in a covenant relationship with the one true God. And God says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he gives them stipulations, covenant requirements in order for them to fulfill their purpose and remain in the land. That came with many blessings, but it also came with the possibility of curses in the event of disobedience. Deuteronomy 28 outlines these curses, and the curses had two purposes. Corrective discipline meant to turn the people back when they had sinned, but also punishment meant to display true justice. Now history shows us that the Israelites repeatedly and drastically failed to be faithful to God. And so they experienced the full force of the covenant curses and were eventually expelled from the land. God abandoned the temple in Ezekiel 10, and it was eventually destroyed. And this all happened through the agency of Babylon, which conquered the kingdom of Judah in about 586 B.C. Babylon sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and deported the people. And from this point, the people would be in exile in Babylon for the next 70 years. However... That time passed, and then God would use another nation to eventually free his people. Seventy years later, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And the new leader of the world, Cyrus the Persian, set the Jews free, allowing them to return to Israel and even to have the freedom to rebuild their temple. The people returned, but hardships in the land, interference from enemies, other factors prevented them from finishing the temple project. Now, the details of this time period can be found in the book of Ezra, particularly chapters 1 through 6. Twenty years would pass since the exile ended without the temple being finished. Haggai shows up on the scene at this point in history, twenty years after the people first returned to their own land. And the book of the Haggai is one of the shortest in the Bible and the second shortest in the Old Testament. It's composed of four messages that Haggai delivered all about the temple. This morning, our text is the second of Haggai's four oracles. The first oracle, which is all of chapter 1 in your English Bibles, was a message sent to the newly returned people of God. The once-exiled people were now returning to their former homes and had begun to rebuild their former life. But in the midst of getting reestablished in the promised land, they had left the temple unbuilt and in ruins. And the heart of the message that Haggai brought from God was simple, rebuild the temple, get to it, prioritize the temple. To contextualize that theologically, at that point in history, the temple was the vehicle for the special experience of the presence of God. Prioritizing the temple was their way of prioritizing the presence of God a way of saying to themselves and to the watching world that they cared about being close to God. In applying that message to ourselves, we can summarize by saying, we need to prioritize the present vehicles of God's presence. We need to prioritize Christ in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, and we need to prioritize his church, which is his bride, a living temple being built up in the present age. We need to prioritize fellowship with Christ through his word, and we need to prioritize his bride, the church, primarily by prioritizing our local church. That's that's Haggai chapter 1. And so our text this morning is a sequel message to the call to prioritize the temple, the call to prioritize God's presence in our lives. And as a sequel, it speaks directly to the task and message of prioritizing the presence of God in our lives. Our passage today speaks directly to the task of prioritizing Christ and the church. So I want you to look closely with me at our text today, jumping back in, and we'll focus first on verses 1 through 3. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, if you read their immediately preceding verses, you would have seen that the happy ending to Haggai 1 is that the people listened and they got to work. God stirred their hearts so that they listened to his word through Haggai. The people listening to their prophets was not exactly a regular occurrence in the Bible, so that was exciting. However, things didn't go perfectly smoothly from then on. The date in chapter 2, verse 1, lets us know that this message comes about one month after the people had responded in obedience and gotten to work on the temple. Now, for a more thorough historical narrative of what's going on in this time period, we have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we heard read earlier from Ezra that though many people rejoiced at the temple foundations being laid, others wept. Others were Upset. We aren't told explicitly why in Ezra, but we are told that these were elders who had seen the first temple. And we read in Haggai and we see that the reason the ones who had seen the first temple were so upset is because this second temple, this new foundation being laid, paled in comparison to the first. God says, Isn't it as nothing in your eyes? As nothing. Do you ever do you ever say that in response to something? Well, that's nothing compared to this. That's what's going on. Some people were excited about the new temple. They experienced joy. But others said, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be feeling joy. This is nothing compared to the old temple. This is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. You shouldn't be excited. You should be sad. Apparently, this sentiment was enough to actually throw a wrench into the work. I mean, it is a discouraging message. That thing that you are working on and you are excited about, well, it really isn't that special. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's disappointing. What if I said that to to one of my children who excitedly showed me some artwork they were working on? I don't know why you're so happy. That's nothing compared to what I could see at the Art Institute. It's disheartening. So this response interrupted the work. So much so that God sent another message to Haggai for the people. And it opens with the acknowledgement and the identification of the problem. God knows the heart and gets right at the feeling that was stopping the work. That's why he says, Who among you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, this isn't God criticizing the temple. This isn't God coming down and saying, Hey, I asked you to build a temple, and look. Compared to the first one, this is nothing. You need to step it up. Don't read that this way. This is God seeing through the heart and identifying what the people were feeling. He says, I know you think this temple isn't all that special. I know you think that there is little to no glory in the work that you are doing now. See, these feelings, this reaction, this disappointment in the temple were not a good thing. We know this because it brought about a stop to the work. And God sent word to Haggai addressing these feelings and telling the people, get back to work on the temple. In this passage, the problem of disappointment in the present leads to apathy. Work stops getting done because the people see what they are working on and their disappointment with what they have made compared with the great things of the past, causes them to stop working altogether, to abandon the call. And this isn't a a one-time historical anomaly. This passage addresses a real problem that often manifests in our own hearts. When we allow this text to be a mirror, we see one of the most devastating possible interruptions to living a life in Christ. That problem is disappointment with the present. When you look around and everything you see just currently disappoints you. And it leads to apathy. When you see something that lets you down so much that you choose to react by doing nothing. By pulling back and by shutting down. Now, this passage most immediately applies to the church. The temple was what God had called the people to be building as a show and means of prioritizing his presence among them. But for us, the place of God's presence most tangibly felt is not a building, but the people that God is building up together. And it is possible, more than likely, that each of us at one time or another has been disappointed in the church. Whether it's your church specifically or the church universal, there are times when what we see just gets us down and as this passage hints this disappointment that leads to apathy is often connected to backwards looking and comparing living in the past choosing a moment when things were better and looking at that and saying you know the present is just i mean when you compare the two that that was so much better maybe you compare your church to the way your church was three years ago maybe you compare your current church to your old church My church is bleeding members. There's a crisis going on. There's division and tension over issue X. We don't have a good meeting place. The sermons are too short or too long. They don't have enough application or maybe not enough exegesis or X or Y or Z. We aren't loving each other enough. We aren't supporting each other. We aren't giving enough. We aren't sending out enough missionaries. We don't have enough personal evangelism. We don't have enough large-scale evangelism. And on and on it goes. Maybe the disappointment is not in your church specifically, but in the church universal. Maybe you lament and say the church is not as theologically literate as it was in the days of the church of the reformers. The church is not as spiritually sensitive as in the days of the Great Awakening. The church is not as morally pure as in the days of the Puritans. Why are so many leaders falling into sin or abusing their powers nowadays? I mean, I feel like I read a new, about a new church scandal every other week. I miss the integrity of a Wycliffe or a Bunyan. It's easy to look into the past, believe the past was all around better, and then become supremely disappointed with the present. The kind of disappointment that leads to disengaging completely. The Jewish elders said, well, fine. If we are building such a pathetic temple, then I'm not going to be a part of it. I will weep for the old. And their lamenting was influential. So, too, it will be influential when we say, if the church universal or if my church is in such a sorry state, then I'm not going to be a part of it. I'll weep for the old. As one preacher said while reflecting on this very text, I think anybody who has ever undertaken a work for the cause of Christ has felt that kind of discouragement. The sense that you work and work and the product seems so paltry. You pour yourself into a thing week after week and month after month and the fruit is so minimal. Then you look back in history or across town and see the grand achievement of others and your temple seems so trivial and you get discouraged and are tempted to quit and put away your aspirations and drop your dreams and put your feet up in the front of a television and coast. Who wants to devote his life to a second-rate temple? End of quote. Now, Before we go any further, I want to make three observations about the kind of disappointment and apathy that I've been talking about from this passage. The first is that it is often rooted in a romanticization of the past. We glorify the past in a way that we shouldn't. We are capable of looking at the past through rose-colored lenses while doing nothing but complaining about the present. But, that being said... The sinful, broken apathy that comes from disappointment does not have to be rooted in a factual inaccuracy. So hear what I'm saying. Now, it is true that often what you think was better wasn't as better as you thought it was. But it's not always true. Because sometimes, yes, thing X is better than thing Y. This passage isn't speaking against discernment and applying standards of evaluations. It is possible to say and to be true, yeah, we were better off when our church was doing X, or the church as a whole is better off under widespread faithful expositional preaching. The problem is not with evaluating. In this text, God does not challenge the view that the temple that they were building in Haggai's time was materially inferior to Solomon's temple. It is was it's not a problem to note that or to use that as motivation to work harder or anything else the problem is that the people were so disappointed with their new temple that it led them to abandoning the work and it was work that god had commanded them to do regardless of the fact that it would not be as spectacular as solomon's temple it is a problem for us when we are overwhelmed by disappointment of because of a comparison with an idealized or a real past. And we choose, because of pain and sadness, to no longer obey the commands of God. Number two, though this passage most immediately applies to our relationship with the church, it also applies to our personal lives. It is just as easy to become disappointed with where we are in life because we compare ourselves with others and then we become apathetic about our own calling. Maybe you are disappointed with work. Maybe something is going on that's pushed you over the edge. Maybe you stop and take stock and you realize you, you really aren't where you wanted to be career-wise at this point. But Bob next door sure is rising fast. Maybe you got overlooked for the promotion. Maybe your work isn't fulfilling at all. You don't even want to be doing it. What's the point? What good really comes from it? Maybe you didn't get into the school you wanted. Maybe you didn't get the scholarship you needed or you felt you deserved. Maybe it's your home life. Maybe you're disappointed with your marriage. The couple next door seems so perfect. Or maybe you're disappointed that you're not married. If only I had a husband or wife. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe your kids have physical problems. Maybe they have emotional problems. Maybe they haven't lived up to your plans for them. Maybe it's your lack of kids. Maybe if you could just have children, then life would be all right. Maybe you have a health problem that won't go away or that hasn't been diagnosed. There are so many ways that we can be disappointed in our current situation when we compare our lives to others. Our passage this morning speaks to apathy created not just by disappointment with the church, but any kind of disappointment created by dwelling on comparisons. And thirdly, I want to talk about, briefly, the double-edged sword of experience. What do I mean by that? Well, by and large, experience is a good thing. The older you get, ideally the wiser you get. This is a principle that is affirmed in Scripture. However, here in these verses, we encounter one of the things we need to be mindful of as we grow and as we experience things. The ones who were making the lament that led to the halting of the work were the elders who had seen the first temple. And they had a short-sightedness that made them unable to appreciate the work that God was currently doing as they compared it to the former work. Remember, the comparison itself was accurate. That's not the problem. The problem isn't experience itself or using our experience to give us the ability to evaluate things. The problem is when we allow our experience to rob us from seeing the glory of God in his present work. This can apply to older folks who have lots of life experience and now nothing pleases them. Because nothing ever compares to the good times whenever that happens to be for them. But it also applies to any type of experience. Young people experience this too. There is this dulling of the senses that can happen with lots of exposure to something. Whether that be life in general or something specific. And we call this becoming jaded. If you're a musician who has traveled the world and heard the best of the best, it's easy to hear an average violinist play a beautiful song and say, that's nothing. I've heard way better. So... Don't let a wide experience of things, don't let knowledge rob your ability to see the glories of God and the beauty of his works in all of life. There is something to be enjoyed in Monet's paintings, and there is something to be enjoyed in my three-year-old scribbles. Don't let the former rob you and blind you towards seeing the latter. So this morning, with all that said, this morning we're going to address disappointment, the kind of disappointment that leads to sadness and doubt and depression and ultimately to nothing, nothing in the truest sense of the word because you feel defeated and you withdraw from the work. But maybe, maybe many of us aren't feeling that level of disappointment with the life or the church. Some of us might be, but maybe we're not. Even when we don't feel disappointment at that level, the question remains, what do you do when it creeps up on you? Because I guarantee you, if you're not feeling it now, one day you will. So what do you do with that disappointment? Whether that's today or whether that's in the future. What do you do when you look around you and when you, what you see fails to fulfill your hopes and expectations? That brings us to... Kind of the the application this morning, really the only application. Because in the the midst of this widespread letdown, God sends this new oracle, another message to the people, and the message is composed of three parts. First, God identifies the problem, which we've been looking at and lingering on. But the majority of our passage, verses 4 through 9, contains God's response to all this. Two parts to this response. The message in the midst of the unfulfilled expectations is an action that God commands and a reason for that action. That is, God is going to tell us, he tells the people, what the proper response is, the proper action to take now. Sometimes in theological lingo, we talk about the indicative and the imperative. The imperative being what you should do or are commanded to do and the indicative being the objective truth that underlies and acts as the reasoning for the imperative. In verses 4 through 9, God gives us an imperative and an indicative. And since logically the indicative underlies the imperative, when we try to be systematic, we usually follow that pattern in preaching or teaching. But rhetorically, there are often many reasons for departing from this order. And in this passage, rhetorically, application comes first. That's what we're going to do today. For many of you, this might be a backward sermon: application, then doctrine. However, I hope that you'll see that this passage does this specifically to encourage you, and I've stuck with this order for the same purpose. So first, we'll examine this imperative. God essentially gives one response to the Israelites' disappointment and apathy, and this one response is composed of three parts, three commands. Look at the passage with me and let's examine these three things. I want us to feel the structure of this, these verses. The three commands that make up God's desired response from the Israelites can be found in verses 4 and 5. They are, be strong, work, do not fear. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Be yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The first command, be strong, is repeated three times to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people. The next two, work and don't fear, are addressed to the collective whole of these three together. We know this because the commands are plural, although we generally don't single that, signal that in English. But another way to translate them would be, all of you work, all of you do not fear. Be strong and do not fear is actually a common pair in scripture. God often addresses his people with these words or some variation on them. Though they are imperatives, they're commands in form, Functionally, they're they're words of comfort. Like when I hold my son crying in the middle of the night and tell him, it's okay, don't be afraid. I'm not really commanding him anything, I'm comforting him. And here, while the words have that usual element of comfort to them, whenever God gives them, they also contain this strong element of command because they are interrupted with the one word imperative, work. Work. So instead of the usual, be strong and don't fear, we get, be strong, work, and don't fear. Work is put right in the middle, because God wants the people to understand the desired outcome of this message. And punctuation in the Bible is always tricky. The ESV starts with a new sentence with the word work, and it immediately follows it with the next clause, for I am with you. But don't let that make you breeze over this sentence too quickly. In fact, the ancient Hebrew commentators put a break on the word after the word work, giving it this kind of emphatic position. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people, and work. Stop. Pause. Let that sink in. Punctuating it that way makes it clear that the for I am with you actually goes with all of it. The application is do what you have been commanded to do. Get to work. For the Israelites, that meant finish the temple, complete what was started. God knows that some have been discouraged by the prospect of a lackluster temple, but they have been called to build it. Their discouragement, their unfulfilled expectations do not change the command and call of God. So there is one main application for today's sermon. What do you do when you are disappointed in the church? What do you do when you are disappointed in life? Get up. And do the work. Use the means of grace given to the church. Pray, read the scriptures, meditate on them, fellowship, listen to the word preached, take communion, serve others. The spirit is building us up together into a holy temple of the Lord. So don't check out. Come and be built up. So Embassy Church, do the work. Now, this application might seem harsh at first. But don't forget, the command to work is sandwiched between God's favorite words of comfort. Be strong and do not fear. That's what a parent says to a child out of love. God has told many people in scripture to be strong and not to fear. And almost always, he gives this encouragement to someone about to go into battle. Often with enemies much stronger than they were. In any case, God doesn't give these encouragements for the small stuff. God told Abraham to be strong as he was called to leave everything he had known and move to a strange land away from his extended family. God told the Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea not to fear as the Egyptians were barreling towards them. God told them to be strong and not to fear when they were going into the promised land and had seven nations that they would, they would have to fight. And later, God gave the same encouragement to them in the face of the great Assyrian army, the mightiest force that had existed on the planet up to that point. In this text, God isn't telling the people and God isn't telling you to put a false grin on your face. This is not God saying, just buck up, kiddo. This is not God saying, just suck it up and do it. God recognizes the challenge and the hardship to what he is calling the Israelites to do. Their work would require strength and bravery and faith. And he knows. He knows that they are feeling pain and grief and fear. God does not minimize your pain and your hurt and your disappointment. Whether that is disappointment stemming from your church or the church generally, or something going on in your personal life, God says, What you need now is to be strong and not to fear because I know that the work I have called you to is difficult. I know that the weight that you carry is heavy. I know that everything in you may not feel up to coming and singing and learning and fellowshipping and living and working. But I am calling you to be strong and brave and to do the work. That's today's application. Do you have fallen hopes, broken dreams, unmet expectations? Has the church disappointed you? Has this church disappointed you? I know it's hard. So be strong, don't be afraid, and do the work of the church. Do it together. Listen to the word. Sing the word. Pray the word. Preach the word. Trust the word. See the word. Don't check out from church. Don't check out from each other. Don't check out from the life that God has called you to live as his people. That's not where the passage ends, though. The final element in this passage that and we're, we're going to focus on are the reasons God gives for our ability to do this hard application. Why can we be strong and work and not fear? In giving those commands, God accompanies them with two because clauses, or two times that God starts out a statement with the word for. These are near the end of verse 4 and in the beginning of verse 6. In the ESV, God says for, which is just another way of saying because. If for sounds foreign to you, that's okay. A lot of people don't really talk that way in casual speech. The Hebrew word underlined this just means because. If you're someone who writes in your Bible, circle these words. They are important. Whenever you read the Bible, pay attention to the for's and the becauses. They mean that what follows is the grounds for what has been said so far. What follows is the reason for what has been stated. They help us see logical connections. And what God has stated in this case is the difficult application of our need to be strong and work and not fear. And so God gives us in two because clauses the reason why we will be able to do it. The grounds and the motivation for our obedience to today's applications are found here. When we look at these because statements, we find that God essentially has given us three reasons spread out over these two statements. Or another way to say that is really God gives us one reason in three parts. We have a reason grounded in the past, a reason grounded in the present, and a reason grounded in the future. So first, let's look at the past. In verse 4, God interrupts his string of imperatives, his string of commands to say, For I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, the general of the armies of heaven. For that's what Lord of hosts means. And that statement is kind of a summary. It's the summary of all the reasons, really, in one sense. It all boils down to God saying, I'm here. It's okay. I'm here. Be strong because I am with you. But God breaks this down further for the people in the immediately following statement. He says, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. So the first thing that God does is he roots the Israelites' ability to be faithful to his call in his past making a covenant with them. God is referring here to the Sinai covenant, to the giving of the law, when God promised to be their God and to take them as his own people. He said that they would be his treasured possession out of all the peoples, that they would be a nation set apart, consecrated to himself. God came and appeared in a thick, dark cloud, and there was lightning, loud noise, and the people received the law of God. And then God ratified this covenant by having Moses kill oxen and sprinkle their blood on the people. This was a blood-sealed covenant. This is serious stuff a binding arrangement whereby God promised to be their God. And so God points back to this moment, back to this promise, this relationship that they were all in together. God points back to the shed blood of the bulls and says, remember, remember the agreement that I myself made with you. That is still in force the blood shed and sprinkled on your ancestors is my promise to all of you to continue this work, to make you my special people. You may not feel like a consecrated special people of God right now because the temple you are building is not that spectacular. But remember, God has covenanted with you and the covenant stipulations that you are obligated to keep Involves simple obedience. It all boils down to simple obedience. And right now God says, I've called you to make a temple. That temple does not have to be grandiose right now. It just needs to exist. You only need simple obedience. The lacklusterness of the temple that you are building does not nullify God's promises to you, he says to Israel. It does not nullify God's faithfulness because the covenant was made. The oxen were killed and the blood was sprinkled. In the face of a disappointing temple, God isn't going to abandon you, O people of Israel. And this same truth is magnifying to the nth degree for us, the church of Jesus Christ, because we don't look back to a covenant made and sealed with the blood of oxen. God has made a greater and better covenant with us. The covenant was ratified with his own blood. Jesus, our Lord and King, shed his blood to make a covenant with us. This is why when we take the cup of communion on Sundays, we remember the words of our Lord. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this was not shed only for our ancestors. God applies the blood of Christ individually to all believers. That means if you are here, if you trust in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer and follower of the Lord, God has sprinkled you. He has applied to your account the blood of Christ. Think about that. We talk about it, but we, we should stop and think about it sometimes. For you, believer, God shed blood. Jesus, the eternal Son, died. Sit there, feel it. Feel the weight of the blood shed for you. What, what circumstance will pull God from you now? What failure? What disappointment will crush you? What unfulfilled hope is going to break you? There will be none. Nothing is going to break you. Paul said, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said this because he understood Jesus died. There is blood involved here. God is supremely for you. Christ shed his own blood to make you his special possession. And that's the first reason we can do the hard work of the Christian life in the midst of terrible disappointment. Because we are in a blood-made covenant with the creator. And the second ground that God gives us for the difficult obedience is anchored in the present. At the end of verse 5, God says to the people, My spirit remains in your midst. My spirit remains, or it stands, as in present tense. My spirit is with you now. Remember, remember the historical situation. God says that despite the fact that the temple was not finished. He says, my spirit stands with you now. Remember, the temple was the place under the old covenant where God made the special manifestation of his spirit. It was his house, the place where the people would draw near to him. And now God says that even without a fully functioning temple, they only had the foundation, that he was there. The spirit of God was there among the people. God was promising the supernatural power and encouragement necessary at every turn, at every surprise, that he himself would see to it that the people were spiritually, emotionally, and physically equipped to do the work. Once again, when we turn to our own situation, these words have a how much more quality. Because in the new covenant, God has promised specifically to dwell in the hearts of believers. Jesus promised to send the comforter after he left and God's people are now a living temple wherein the spirit of God dwells. The church, we, I mean we know and we say it. the church isn't the building, it is the people of God. Christian, when you feel alone and defeated, God's spirit is with you there. You can turn to him. You can pray to him. You don't have to go to a church building. You don't have to be in a a temple. You don't have to be in a sanctuary. You don't have to be in a confessional booth. You have access to him now. You can pray to him. You can trust him. You can rest in him. Furthermore, this means that God is with you in the work that you find disappointing. He's there in that moment, in the life that you find disappointing. God is in that work, and he is doing a greater work than you can imagine. As you compare your life or your church with others, you can rest in the promise that God is with you in your life and in your church and that he will use them. Even if you can't see it, he will use them for his glory. You don't get to say, you, you, you just don't. You don't get to say, we got, well, God may use others, but not me in my pathetic life because God's spirit is with you now. You don't get to say, well, God seems to be focused on other churches because ours isn't that special. The spirit of God lives inside of all believers. So if yours is a real church, if you really believe in the Lord Jesus, then God is really there and really doing a work. A work there whose glory you cannot even really truly fathom. Then we come to our, the final ground that God gives us for our ability to be strong, work, and not to fear. And that's a reason rooted in the future. And this is actually the one that God spends the most words on. Look with me at verses 6 to 9. Be strong, work, don't fear. For, thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, In verses 6 and 7, God says he's going to shake creation. He's going to shake the nations. It, it's, it's the, the imagery is the idea of sifting, shaking. You're, you're shaking away something. You know, when I was in Israel, we worked on a dig and we would, we'd move dirt, but then people would take the dirt and they would shake it through shifters so that the dirt would fall away and hopefully something valuable, a treasure, would be found left behind. Shake back and forth, leaving the impermanent things to fall away, leaving only the permanent When God says he's going to shake creation, shake the nations, that means he is going to remove that which is not permanent. The fallen, broken, sinful portions of this world that still remain, and the ones that still remain in our own hearts, will be done away with. As the author of Hebrews puts it when he cites this very verse, only the things that cannot be shaken will remain. That is why in Haggai it says all the treasures, all the desirable things, all the precious things from the nations will come. And the temple that the Israelites were disappointed in would be filled with glory. The best of the best. Nothing else would remain. Verse 8 says all the silver belongs to God. All the gold belongs to God. This is not a prediction. It's a simple statement of fact. All the riches spread all over the world in the hands of all sorts of people, these actually belong to God. And one day they will be used solely for his glory. That's guaranteed because they are already his. And no, God doesn't just say to his people, I know this looks disappointing, but try anyway. That's open-ended. I think most of us know what, knows what it's like when a child gets discouraged in a project, maybe for school or something else, and they want to quit. We all probably did it when we were children, or we have kids who do it. I'm no good at this. It's going to be ugly. No one's going to like it. And often all you can really say as a parent is, well, you should still try anyway. We encourage the effort, but that doesn't come with a guarantee. We can't guarantee the outcome. It might, in fact, turn out quite ugly. Maybe no one will like it. But God's encouragement to us in the midst of the work that we often see no glory in is not like the weak encouragement that we are able to give our own kids or that our parents gave to us. Because God's encouragement comes with an ironclad guarantee. God doesn't just say, I know the temple is disappointing. Be strong. Work on it. Don't fear. He says, be strong. Work on it. And one day I will mightily intervene and the temple will no longer be disappointing. This isn't the end. What you see now, what fails to meet your expectations, what has left your hope hanging, this is not the end. You can't say that to your discouraged child with her painting. It's okay. Keep working. One day this is going to be the most beautiful painting anyone has ever laid their eyes on. One day it will steal the breath from its admirers. One day all other artists will tremble at the thought of seeing it in person. One day it will satisfy the hearts of all who see it, and you will be at peace with what has been done. You don't get to say that. But God says that to us. God says that about our work in the church presently. As hard and painful and oftentimes as disappointing as it may be, God says that the most glorious things of the past don't compare with what, has, with what is coming directly related to this work. God says, look to the future. Remember the covenant that I've made with you in the past. Know that my spirit is with you here now in the present and look forward to the glory that I will bring in the future. The three are all intimately connected. The covenant is the past, in the past is the ground for the Spirit's presence, which is the assurance of our future glorification. The same dynamic is in the new covenant. Ephesians chapter 1 contains perhaps the clearest exposition of this. Christ's death is the grounds for our relationship with God, his representation for us in heaven. And everything worthwhile that we have, we have in Christ. On this basis, the Spirit is given as a guarantee of our future inheritance. If you have experienced the regenerating work of the Spirit in the presence, if you have come to hate your sin, to acknowledge it and to hate it, and to acknowledge Christ as Lord, then your future is glorious. Fact. Full statement. Herod eventually came along, and he made the temple quite materially impressive. However, the author of Hebrews, who lived during the time of Herod's temple, made it clear that the words of Haggai 2, 6 through 9, had still not been fulfilled. The glory of Herod's temple was not the glory envisioned here. The glory that God had promised was still yet to come. The physical temple was never meant to last as the vehicle for God's presence. Revelation 21, it's it's an elaboration on this prophecy, really. I won't list them for you now, but there are actually numerous verbal and conceptual links to let us know, hey, you need to pair these two. And Revelation 21 says that in God's new perfect city, there will be no temple. There will only be God and his lamb together with his bride. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. God is preparing a bride, and come the wedding day, she will be splendid and beautiful beyond measure. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are part of that bride. The work that we do now, in this life, in the church, in this church, in your church, in your homes, in each and every individual member, that work is for God and for his glory And God is making us into his beautiful bride. Be strong. Don't fear. And continue to press on and do the work. Do the work of the church in your church, here at Embassy Church. Do it at home. Be salt and light. Share your burdens and your weaknesses. Encourage the brethren with love and good deeds and constant reminders of Jesus. And look forward. I should say it over and over again. Christians need to be a waiting people. We need to be a forward-looking people. Keep one eye always on the horizon. Never forget the future. Don't compare yourself with the past. Don't look back unless it's to look back to Christ and his cross. And that should always point you forward. Because being Christocentric, being Christ centered, is only done correctly when you have in view the whole of his ministry, not just his earthly ministry. Your Bible needs to be read not just with Jesus on the cross in mind, but with Jesus on a white horse with a sword in hand. The promises of Christ and the reality of the full consummation of God's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth should be used to comfort us in our disappointments and our hurts. You know, it it boggles my mind that there are Christians out there who have bought into this type of rhetoric that says the promises of God are cheap comfort. It's become a trend for the enlightened, truly loving Christians to not use scripture to comfort and to guide because that's just too superficial, too easy. They say you shouldn't point to these future promises when someone's hurting. It's a cheap comfort to say one day you will have perfect joy and no suffering in God's coming kingdom. That's only cheap comfort if you don't believe it. But if it's true, what could be of more comfort? How often do we use a happy future to get ourselves through something? The workday's terrible, but afterwards I get my favorite pizza. The school, work's gonna be, the school week's going to be miserable, but on Saturday, Mom's taking me to Chuck E. Cheese. The more glorious the future, the more powerful the comfort it is. And God's promised coming kingdom, which we get to be part of, has more glory than you can literally imagine. Of course, we don't use the promises of God to be dismissive of hurts and disappointments. That's true. God isn't dismissive of the hurts and disappointments of his people in Haggai. As he says to them, be strong, don't fear. So we don't dismiss people's hardships. But we absolutely do use the promise of God to comfort them and ourselves in those hardships. We need to be awaiting, forward looking people. For those of you who follow Bible reading plans, there's a lot out there to choose. A lot of options for which order to read the Bible in, if I might add my own suggestion. Read the first three chapters of Genesis and then read the whole book of Revelation. And then read Revelation every other book, if necessary. Keep the events of Revelation in your mind as you read every other word of Scripture. I know that the weight of disappointment, of unfulfilled hopes, is heavy and hard. I know that when you compare what you have and what you have done with others, that sometimes the feeling of loss is maddeningly painful. And that in the face of the feeling of such loss, the temptation to shut down is strong. But don't do it. Embassy Church, be strong, do the work, don't fear. Do this because you have been covered and brought into the family of God with the blood of Christ. Do this because the Spirit is with you even now. And do this because then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this inheritance. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of all the nations. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus. I thank you for what you are currently doing in us and through us by your spirit, and I thank you for what you have promised to do for us in the future. And I ask that each of us would lay hold of those promises, that we would be- believe them truly, that we would cling to them, that you would use them to help encourage us to do the work when it's hard. I ask that you would comfort all the hearts here. I ask that you would convict those who don't know you, so that we can serve you and work for you, so that we could be a part of the glorious work that you are doing in all creation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.